Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. October. For me, this is the most wonderful time of the year. Sorry, Christmas. Appropriately for our first October together, I decided to explore the history of Halloween. Well, Halloween-ish. Societies around the world have observed celebrations that share aspects with the Halloween we know today. Those are in addition to Samhain, the original from which Halloween was derived. This month, we'll look at some festivals from the ancient world, Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead, Samhain, and finally we'll make connections to Halloween. So let's dive in first with some ancient festivals. I'm going to cover a few different ones from different societies. Being from so long ago, our information on what these festivals were like is a bit limited. Even so, they're still worth talking about because there's fascinating similarities to be found. The first festival we're going to talk about comes to us all the way from ancient Greece and is called Anthesteria. Because this predates the Gregorian calendar we know today, we can only estimate when this festival took place. The month the Greeks knew was called Anthesterion, and the festival is thought to have taken place in what we know as February. In the Greek calendar, the festival occurred from the 11th to the 13th of the month. Despite the fact that it was celebrated among all Ionian communities, one of the four major ancient Greek tribes, our knowledge of it comes almost entirely from Athens. One source compares the importance of Anthesteria in Athens to that of Christmas today. Now don't mistake this for an association with the holiday, it's just a statement on how important the holiday was to the Athenians. Anthesteria, as a festival, was dedicated to the god Dionysus, twice-born son of Zeus and immortal woman Semele. So one story goes, she was seduced by Zeus and he got her pregnant. As one might expect, this made his wife Hera angry. He did that a lot. Zeus had a bad habit of going after mortal women and getting them pregnant. When Hera learned of this pregnancy, she disguised herself and went to cast doubt in Semele's mind over who her lover was. With her curiosity piqued and still pregnant, Semele requested that Zeus grant her something. When he agreed, she asked to see him in his full glory to prove he was indeed the god he claimed to be. He begged her to reconsider, but she refused and he was bound by his oath to grant her this one request. Unfortunately, no mortal could look upon Zeus in his true form, and even when he appeared as his smallest thunderbolt, she was completely incinerated. Zeus retrieved Dionysus and attached him to his thigh. There, Dionysus was carried to term and born a few months later. This series of events is what leads to the twice-born label. The first was when he was removed from his mother's womb when she was incinerated, and the second was when he was born from Zeus's thigh. At least one version of Dionysus' myth has him descending as an adult to the underworld to retrieve his mother Semele from Hades and make her a goddess on Mount Olympus with the name Theone. In terms of his worship as a god, Dionysus is of uncertain origins, and his cults take many different forms. 
This leads to different versions of the myths surrounding him, even when it comes to who his mother was and how he was born. What is common to them all is his association with wine, and wine is the reason he is associated with the Anthisteria Festival. So now you have an idea of who the festival is dedicated to, let's look at the festival itself. The festival served two purposes. The first was the beginning of spring, though the significance of this day related not to the season, but to the readiness of wine that had been stored in the autumn of the previous year. This wine was stored in jars called pithoi, which were taken to the shrine of Dionysus located out in the marshes. This took place on the first day of the festival, Pithoigia, the jar opening. All members of the household, including any slaves, were included in this day. Once the pithoi were opened and offered to Dionysus, they were then sampled by the celebrants. On this day, some souls of the dead, called Keres, returned from the underworld. Being that these were angry spirits who suffered violent deaths, the Athenians sought to protect themselves, although the celebratory nature of the festival seems to have been the dominant factor all the same. The second day was called Choise, the pouring. People dressed for a merry celebration and gathered at drinking clubs. Again, slaves were included in the celebrations. At these gatherings, they would sit and apparently participated in drinking contests to see who could drink their five liters of wine the fastest. This amount was referred to as a chouse, and children were given a miniature version as a toy. Now I think of five liters of wine, and all I can think of is the hangover I'd have in the morning. It was also likely that on this day, the wife of the Basilius, an Athenian official with some religious importance, was given as a wife to Dionysus. It's not clear what this ceremony entailed, in particular what physical aspect was involved, or what this woman did after the festival ended. Now, I'm not sure what the dead were up to on this day, but they were still around somewhere. The third and final day was Chaitroi, or the pots. The name appears to refer to pots of seed and vegetable bran which were offered to the dead. No one tasted these offerings, and none of the gods, Dionysus included, were involved. This food was strictly for the souls of the dead. Presumably, this was sufficient to make them go back to the underworld. It seems people still celebrated on this day, but now it was the dead who became the focus. And thus concludes the Anthisteria. An interesting three days for the ancient Greeks, in Athens anyway. Not a Halloween celebration, but a few aspects we can pull for our Halloween-ish theme. Now we turn our attention to ancient Rome. The festival we're going to explore here is called Lemuria. This festival took place on the 9th, 11th, and 13th of May. The Roman poet Ovid, born on March 20th in the year 43 BCE, gives us something of a founding myth for this festival. According to him, the festival was originally called Rimuria and started in the latter part of Rome's founding myth. He writes that the festival was initially named for Remus, brother of Romulus, whom he killed after he founded Rome. Remus appeared as a ghost, wanting future generations to honor him. Romulus did as Remus asked, and gave the name to the festival in which buried ancestors were honored. Eventually, Remurius, for some reason, changed to Lemuria. As fascinating as that is, scholars don't believe that was the case. It's much more likely that the name came from the Lemurs, a type of Roman spirit. The likelihood of this theory is aided by the fact that Lemuria is a festival celebrating the dead. 
During this time, angry and malevolent spirits were said to be wandering in the Romans' homes and needed to be propitiated. The term means to regain the favor of a god or a spirit by doing something that pleases them. To start with, the festival skipped days for a reason. The ancient Romans believed that even numbers were unlucky. A curious superstition, the origins of which I'm not really certain, so here, for a festival intended to propitiate these angry spirits, they wanted to avoid any unlucky days. Various rituals were performed in order to successfully propitiate the spirits. I think I forgot to mention that these were ancestral spirits, not just random spirits like we saw in Anthesteria. They were connected to the people living in the home they were visiting. So these rituals were personal, not public. There was no public event to coincide with the rituals taking place all across Rome. One ritual was the avoidance of knots in the ceremony itself. They believed that knots would interrupt the flow of natural forces. At least that's the theory. We don't know for certain, but following the Roman superstitions, it does make sense. In addition to avoiding knots, they would remove their sandals and walk around barefoot while making a sign to ward off evil. This sign is called Manofica, which translates to fig hand. It's a simple sign to make. Just make a fist and stick your thumb between your index and middle fingers. Curiously, this gesture has developed in a variety of ways that are considered obscene in many countries. So when you see the example posted on social media, keep in mind that whatever meaning you may know for it, in ancient Rome, it was not obscene. It was just warding off evil spirits in this festival. Okay, back to the rituals. After doing the rituals above, they would wash themselves with clean water. Then they would use nine black beans as a way of sending the spirits away. They would either throw the beans or spit them from their mouth. As they did so, according to a few sources I located, they would turn away from where the beans landed and say, These I cast with these beans, I redeem me and mine. It might sound strange, but it ties into another Roman superstition. They believed that beans could house the souls of the dead. The spirits would follow them, possibly being held inside them, and the final ritual involved washing two pieces of bronze and banging them together. Then they would say the following nine times, Ghosts of my fathers, go forth. And so Lemuria would conclude. I saw this reference several times, so I'll say it too. While this may seem akin to magic namely black magic, the ancient Romans did not see it that way. These were ancestral spirits being propitiated, not ghosts to be exorcised or other modern ideas that might come to mind, though it is contributing to our theme all the same. There's another festival in ancient Rome that I want to talk about, also involving spirits of the dead. Feralia took place on February 21st and was the final day of a nine-day festival called Parentalia. Briefly, Parentalia was an official holiday that was celebrated among families. The focus was to strengthen ties between the living and the dead, and rituals were the duty of the pater familias, or head of the family. From what I found, this duty was by Roman law, even though it wasn't a public celebration. Feralia focused on manes, the Roman spirits of the dead, which included deceased individuals, and according to the poet Ovid, was taken very seriously. As I mentioned, we have no evidence of any public rites. Roman citizens were told to bring offerings to the tombs of their dead ancestors. So where Lemuria took place in the home, 
Feralia involved traveling to the tombs. Ovid writes that the offerings included at least an arrangement of wreaths, a sprinkling of grain, a bit of salt, bread soaked in wine, and violets scattered about. A similarity can be drawn to the myth of Aeneas, who poured wine and scattered flowers on Anchises' tomb. As this day was one of mourning, marriages and even worship of the gods were forbidden. I mentioned how the ritual was taken seriously. Ovid wrote of a time that the Romans were at war, and so they neglected to take their offerings during Feralia. This led to the spirits rising in anger, roaming the streets and howling, haunting the Romans who had failed in their duty to perform these rites. Then, as quickly as they began, the haunting ceased once the offerings were made. Not a whole lot of detail, but enough to see the continuation of our theme, and of the Roman views on the souls of the dead. With that, we finished out the ancient Greco-Roman festivals I want to talk about, and now we're going to turn our attention to nearby ancient Egypt. As with the Romans, there's going to be a focus on the spirits of the dead. The first festival we're going to look at is the Wag Festival, also called the Feast of Waggy, I think. This is one of Egypt's oldest festivals, dating back to the Old Kingdom period that spanned from 2686 to 2181 BCE. It's also known as the Age of Pyramids because it was in this time, specifically the 4th Dynasty, when King Sneferu perfected the art of pyramid building and the pyramids of Giza were built under later kings Khufu, Khafre, and Menakure. We have little information left from this time period with most learned through monuments and inscriptions. We know little of who built the pyramids, only those important enough to be entombed. The last king of the 5th dynasty, Unas, was the first to be buried with pyramid texts. These include paintings and inscriptions and provide us with a look at the religious beliefs of the Old Kingdom. Unfortunately, this scarcity of information extends to the Wag Festival, but we do still know a few things about it. The feast is dedicated to the Egyptian god of the underworld, Osiris. He was also known to judge the dead. He was the eldest child of the gods Geb and Nut, earth and sky respectively. His jealous younger brother Set murdered him after Nephthys, Set's wife, pretended to be Isis and seduced Osiris, becoming pregnant with the god Anubis. Set trapped Osiris in a coffin and threw it in the Nile. The coffin was taken in by the king of Byblos and set as a decorative pillar in his court. Unbeknownst to them, Osiris died in that room. When Isis discovered his location, she tried to win the favor of King Malkander and Queen Astarte by making their younger son immortal by bathing him in fire. When the queen discovered this and was horrified, Isis revealed herself to the king and queen and they gave her the pillar in exchange for sparing them. In an attempt to prevent a revival, Set chopped Osiris into pieces and scattered the pieces on land and in the river. With the help of Set's wife, Nephthys, Isis retrieved the pieces, all except one, his penis. This one part had been eaten by a fish at Oxyrhynchus, which was said to be the reason the fish were sacred and never eaten. Still, Isis was able to revive him with the pieces she did find. Then she took Osiris' seed from his body and made herself pregnant with the god Horus. Unfortunately, by not having his body fully reassembled, 
Osiris could no longer rule over the land of the living as he had before he was murdered. This is how he became ruler of the underworld and judge of the dead. The stories of the gods in different societies really are fascinating. At least, I think so. Oh, and if you're wondering about that murderous brother Set, he got what was coming to him. Isis hid Horus until he was grown, at which time he emerged as a warrior and battled Set. Some versions say he killed him, most say he was just driven away and order was restored to the world. Okay, now that you know who Osiris was and why he was worshipped, let's get back to the festival. I started the story by mentioning the festival was dedicated to Osiris. Knowing who he is, it should now make sense that this was a festival meant to honor the deceased. In particular, the deceased who were on their journey into the afterlife. These weren't souls who had died and risen as we saw in ancient Rome's festivals. Rather, they had passed but not yet made the journey to whatever awaited them in the afterlife. Aside from the feast, this festival also had a more symbolic aspect. From what I was able to find, there were two parts to this. The first involved creating boats out of some kind of paper and placing them on graves facing west. This seemed to symbolize the death of Osiris, and then later they would do the same thing on the Nile for the same reason. So this would seem to be how they honored the dead who were on their journey to the afterlife. Kind of a, I guess, a send-off. Though the festival itself is minimal in detail and may only provide a small contribution to our theme, I wanted to mention it all the same. Now we'll move to a more recent festival, or at least relative to the last one. The Wadi Festival, also the beautiful Feast of the Valley, was first celebrated in the Middle Kingdom of Egypt. The time frame of this period is 2050 to 1710 BCE. It is separated from the early kingdom by a period of political division called the First Intermediate Period and would eventually decline into a Second Intermediate Period. Fortunately for us, more information survives from this time period than that of the early kingdom. In a way, the Wadi Festival serves an opposite purpose from the Wag Festival. Souls of the deceased are still being honored, but in this case they are allowed to be among the living. Osiris was not a part of this festival. This time, both living and dead were meant to be honoring the sun god Amun. In Thebes, Amun was part of the Theban triad, which included his wife, a mother goddess Mut, and his son Khonsu, the moon god. Interestingly, it seems they would remove the statues of these three from their temples and become part of a procession to the necropolis in western Thebes. This journey included crossing the Nile and took place between the harvest and the annual Nile flood, sometime between May and September. Among those items carried with them to the necropolis were images of the deceased. It was in this way that the souls of the dead were thought to join the festivities. This would then seem to imply that any of the deceased whose images were not part of the procession remained in the afterlife. These images were then left in the tombs, which perhaps allowed them to join in future celebrations without new images being carried in the procession. Keep in mind that last bit is just speculation on my part. I found no confirmation of it, but if I find anything in the future one way or the other, I'll be sure to let you know. Also in the celebration of the dead were offerings to the graves. Flowers, food, and drink were brought by those visiting the tombs. Remember, the idea was that the souls of those they loved were among them during this festival, celebrating with them. 
so these items honored them and were at the same time part of the overall gathering of the living and the dead. Also don't forget that the gods were present too. God of the underworld Osiris may not have been included, but the Theban triad were. The living honored the dead, and together with the dead, they all honored Amun. Once it was all done, the living returned home, and the souls of the dead returned to the afterlife. So those are our two Egyptian festivals. By now, I'm sure you see why I decided to make this episode about multiple festivals. They're interesting and worth talking about, but there's just not enough detail to make an entire episode for each one. Such is the nature of ancient history. The older it is, the less we have to study. Hopefully you've been enjoying learning what little we do know about these festivals. Now let's talk about an old festival that we know more about. This time we're traveling over to China for the Ghost Festival, also called the Hungry Ghost Festival. This festival is still celebrated today, but looking into the origins is still a bit more complicated. Cultures in Asia, India, Japan, and others all share similar beliefs about the month of the Ghost Festival. Some of these, at least in ancient India, may predate Buddha who lived from the 5th to the 4th centuries BCE. As such, the evolution of the festival itself is uncertain. So before I talk about what the festival is, I want to explore where it might have come from so we can understand why it was important in the past, continues to be important today, and where the rituals involved came from. To find the ancient origins of this festival in India, we look to the Yulanpin Sutra in the Mahayana branch of Buddhism. For those who haven't heard the term, Mahayana Buddhism is one of the two major branches. Theravada Buddhism is the other. There is a third called Vajrayana, which can either be a separate branch or included as part of the Mahayana Buddhism. The spread and development of different branches of Buddhism is a topic well beyond the scope of our theme today, but I still wanted you to know what I mean when I say Mahayana. I am referring to only one branch of Buddhism, and so the origins of the festival in the Yulanpin Sutra are found only in this branch. The story in the sutra centers on one of Buddha's closest disciples, Maudgalyayana. He achieved what is called Abhijna, which can be translated as higher knowledge. This brought with it other benefits, namely psychic abilities. Madhgalyayana tried to use these abilities to find his parents after they'd passed and see where they'd been reborn. He was able to find his father in heaven, but no matter how he searched, he could not find his mother. So he turned to Buddha for help, and so was led to his mother in hell. An important note going forward. In Buddhism, there are many realms of hell. So when I say hell, I'm not talking in the sense of a single place, as you might find in Christianity or even the underworld in Greco-Roman beliefs. Naturally distraught at finding his mother in one of these realms of hell, Maudgalyayana wanted to help her. Because she could not do anything to help herself, Maudgalyayana was advised by Buddha to find ways to make merits for his mother. In Buddhism, making merits meant doing things that bring about good results. Offering food is of primary importance for the story. The merit was then shared with the deceased relatives and could help them achieve rebirth outside of hell. Another Chinese version of the story involves Malgalyayana searching for his mother, only this time she is found reborn as a hungry ghost. You can see this version moving closer to the festival. In an attempt to help her, Malgalyayana offered food through an ancestral shrine. However, the food he offered burst into flames. 
He tried several more times, and the result was always the same. So he sought the help of Buddha. And in this version, too, he was told to make merit for his mother to help her be reborn into heaven. Though this version expanded upon the concept, extending the transferred merit to seven generations of ancestors. The belief that this merit-making was most effective when done as a community led to the rise of the Ghost Festival. In the Chinese transliteration, a translation from one alphabet to another, Madgalyayana's name became Mulian. After this, the expanded version of the story came to be known as Mulian Rescues His Mother. Same story and same people involved, just Chinese names, similar to what we've talked about in other cultures. So now we have the origins of the festival. Let's explore what the Ghost Festival is all about. The story establishes a sense of duty to one's ancestors in Mahayana Buddhism. The story isn't told purely in the fashion of religious instructions. In China, the story of Mulian combines the religious aspect with entertainment to convey the importance of duty to your ancestors. In both versions, this merit-making is helping the living and in the process helping any deceased who are trapped in hell and unable to move on. The term for this in Buddhism is filial piety. The most effective offering of food I mentioned earlier was to be on a specific date instructed by Buddha. The offering was to the monastic community during Pravarena, or the end of the monsoon season, which occurs on the 15th day of the 7th Chinese month. I looked up the date, and this year it was September 2nd. Now the festival itself. It was formed on the idea that, during the 7th month of the Chinese calendar, the gates of hell opened up and allowed the ghosts to wander freely on earth. These ghosts seek food and entertainment, having been neglected by their descendants who failed to offer tribute, or they were never given a proper send-off when they died. These ghosts return to earth on the first day of the seventh month and are able to roam among the living for the entire month, leading to rituals throughout. On the first day, people burn paper money, believed to be of value to the ghosts during the month. As I understand it, there is no one place to do this. Homes, businesses, temples, even the side of the road are all places this may be done. There is also the burning of incense, offering of food on the ground, and even the burning of paper fashioned to look like various objects. Houses, televisions, cars, and others. Symbolically, these are all intended to help the ghosts of the angry ancestors as they are believed to have value in the afterlife. Offerings are left throughout the month, not just on this one day. These offerings are to be left untouched or else misfortune will be brought on whomever does so. On the 14th day of the 7th month, a large feast is held specifically for the ghosts. People bring samples of food and place them on an offering table. Lotus lanterns are then lit and set in rivers to be carried out to sea in a symbolic send-off for the ghosts of forgotten ancestors so that they may be guided to the afterlife. On the last day of the month, the gates of hell are closed up and the ghosts no longer wander earth. Paper money is again burned as people believe ghosts can use it in hell. Additionally, it seems, clothes may be burned for the same reason. More paper lanterns may be placed in rivers with the names of ancestors written on them. I'm not sure if this is an addition to the lotus lanterns or for those who did not send out the lotus lanterns earlier in the month. As I understand it, this send-off is to the afterlife, as with the lotus lanterns, and is not a rebirth into heaven, only a return to the realm they came from. And so concludes the festival. 
practice today but born from ancient traditions. The reason for the angry ghosts goes back to the teachings in Mahayana Buddhism. Remember I mentioned that hell in Buddhism involved multiple realms. Among these realms were restless spirits whose descendants did not observe their duty of filial piety. So the festival as a whole is built on that story as a reminder not to neglect that duty. It does seem to be intended as a scary month for that reason. Care is taken to please these angry ghosts, whether they are your ancestors or not. These ghosts are there precisely because they are already angry due to a lack of filial piety. In similarity to other festivals we talked about, we see offerings and duty to one's ancestors as major factors. And I bet you can already see where it fits into our theme. And so we finish our look at the ancient festivals. As I'm sure you notice, none of these have a direct correlation to Halloween. Fact is, there's limited connection to the holiday as a whole when looking so far back. Today we were looking more for festivals that held some similarities to the ideas of our more modern holidays, which we'll discuss in the coming weeks. A little here, a little there, part of our theme all the same. We will, of course, bring it all together at the end of the month, but think on these and feel free to discuss them in the meantime. Next week we'll be exploring the Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. I hope you'll tune in.